Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks are flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information on how to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So tonight, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Dr. Susan Campbell. Susan has authored 12 books on relationships and conflict resolution, has delivered hundreds of seminars and workshops internationally, and has counseled thousands of individuals and couples. She has appeared on CNN's Newsnight, Good Morning America, and Dr. Dean Adele. Welcome to the show, Susan. Glad to be here, Sumity. So glad to have you back again for your second appearance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was really excited to see that you had this new book, your 12th book coming out. Um, and I wanted to start by maybe you can tell us a little bit of, of your origin story briefly about how you you decided to focus on becoming a relationship expert and writer and then maybe a little bit of how that evolved to being interested in writing about triggers and why you thought that was an important topic. Sure. Well, first I want to say who isn't interested in relationships, but <laughs> there may be a few of us who who shy away from them. In fact, I think my younger brother one time he said they're just more trouble than they're worth. Right. So I guess I know I guess I know one person in the world who who isn't <laughs> but or at least at the time. But um, I watched my parents. I, I was a very curious child. And, of course, how your parents get along is extremely interesting to a child. It's your whole safety and security is partly founded on, I shouldn't say whole, but most of your safety and security as a child is founded upon how well your parents are getting along, assuming you have two parents, or how well you and your primary parent is getting along. So that's relationship. Your basic foundation of safety and security requires some some healthy, safe, secure relationship to, in order to develop properly. So I'm this little kid and I'm watching my parents and uh, they did have some uh, arguments at times. Well, mostly it was just my father would uh, blow up and my mother would cry. And, of course, you know, I had pain watching that. But as, you know, as I was growing up, they started getting involved in self-help, the self-help movement. And we're talking the mm-hmm. 40s here, okay? Mm-hmm. But there were actually a few good self-help books on the market. And they they started working on themselves, believe it or not. I remember this a book that they had called Your Inner Child of the Past by oh. Hugh Misseldine. Now, can yeah. you believe that this was, well, this was probably the 50s by the time that book came out. But there yeah. there were, there were a few good resources. They were determined not to fall in the same 
path of their own parents, who I judged as pretty neurotic and didn't get along. And they, I was watching my parents. They worked it through. They, mm-hmm. they talked. And I was an only child for the first seven years, and we were all very close. My parents took the parenting role very seriously. So their model of parenting was to be honest with me about how hard it can be to be a parent, how the parent doesn't always know the right answer, and your mom and I or your dad and I are working it out, and, you know, he comes from this point of view and I come from that point of view. And one thing that was easy to notice and to talk about was my mother grew up in the South, and she was very close to the earth, and she did not have a college education. She was more uh, into herbs and gardening and, you know, all all kinds of body-oriented things. So she had a lot of good body intuition, which was lovely. My father had a college education. He grew up in New York. So just to just for them to be able to name that, that was kind of an obvious difference. Um, but they were willing to talk to me about their, their other differences. Like my father had a very short fuse. So, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about emotional reactivity and triggers later on here. And mm-hmm. my father was quite triggerable. Mm-hmm. But as they went along, I could see my father stopping himself when he got triggered, apologizing shortly thereafter. My mother didn't just go in the corner and cry anymore. She became more assertive. So I watched my parents do personal growth before my very eyes, and I kind of go, this shit works. And by the time I was 12, I was hypnotizing my friends. I was counseling all my friends about their boyfriend problems or their parent problems. And I was known as a kid who could keep confidences Mm. for some strange reason i i did not get off on telling other people secrets you know mm-hmm. something that a lot of kids do gossip so i got a reputation for being safe to talk to and so then i'm getting a lot of practice for what i'm later going to do as a profession be a, a psychologist a relationship counselor and i call myself a relationship coach right now but it mm-hmm. it all it all started back then watching my parents i think Wow, that's really amazing. They were quite the pioneers of relationship personal growth. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't answer that second part of your question, is how do I come to be interested in triggers? But well, yeah, because you've... you've go ahead you know, and ask that. <laughs> well, yeah, your books have been on various topics, so what led to yeah. that being the next book? Good. Um, about six years ago, I, I wrote a book for couples about about the whole triggering process, teaching couples how to to pause and get more connected to what they're feeling and sensing before going on with trying to converse when you're triggered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I wrote this one book about triggers, and the, well, the reason I wrote that was because I'd been in private practice for already about 50 years, and that was the main thing that seemed to disrupt the ability for couples to communicate and to have any empathy for each other because mm-hmm. they would go into their survival, you know, call it in the book, the survival alarm reaction where this mm-hmm. part of your brain just goes, danger, danger. And I hadn't really 
known much about brain science before I wrote that book in 2015. That was called oh. Five-Minute Relationship Repair. Mm-hmm. So in that book, I outlined a whole bunch of brain science and attachment theory to help people realize that triggering is natural. Please accept yourself and all that. Okay, so you know, fast forward to then... 2020, when COVID happened, I had some time on my hands because uh, <clears throat> I wasn't socializing and traveling. Uh, I still had a busy private practice, but I, you know, I had weekends free. And I had always, since the other book had come out and since I was working with couples who were working with the material in that other book, but what seemed to be so hard was to deeply accept that, yeah, we do get triggered. You know, I mean, it's easy to write a book about it, and here's what to do when you're triggered. And I kind of skipped over the the deep acceptance for oneself and, and how how to really help people n- not think there's something wrong with you. And, I mean, that was mm-hmm. part of my first intent with, with, with the first book on triggering. It wasn't the first time I mentioned triggering in my books. I've been mentioning that all along, but these were the two in-depth books about this subject. But this latest book now, and today's the launch date, this is the day that it hits the bookstores and Amazon Mm -hmm. and so forth, so this is exciting. But Mm -hmm. I I wanted to write a second book. I said, you know, they're not getting it. People are not getting how normal this is to be triggered and try to not shame themselves. And so I so I addressed shame a lot more in this this second book and I addressed the inner critic more and did a, a, a lot more exercises on the whole acceptance part of what I call the five steps of trigger work because I so I've outlined this new book according to five developmental tasks that everyone needs to know how to go through or how to accomplish and that first developmental task is acceptance before any of the other steps will um, will really take it won't right. you won't get the deep healing if you don't start by accepting oh yeah i get triggered okay right. i'm still an acceptable human being exactly um, well, I have a, a question about acceptance, but before we do, can you just define, like, how do you how are you defining a trigger, and then what causes us to get triggered? Good, good. Well, first of all, a, 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 a trigger is like a sensitivity. We could call it a trigger sensitivity. It's a tendency to go into a survival reaction when something happens in our present life that mimics some past developmental trauma or an insult to our healthy development. So Mm -hmm. let me pick that apart. Something happens that you don't like. You get angry, upset, hurt, you have defensiveness, you want to run out of the room, disappear. So those are are trigger reactions. Mm -hmm. Those are the ways that the body and the mind of a, a human just naturally tries to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is and this is based on some brain science, which I can go into a little bit more. But it's an emotional sensitivity, actually. And the emotions that come up are triggered by the fact 
that some of my core needs in the same area. So let's say the emotion that, that comes up is the fear when that person seems to be moving away from me or not paying attention to me. We call that fear of abandonment. But the, there's an emotional quality to that. Oh, no. Oh, they're leaving. They're going away. And so when, when that happens, it becomes an overreaction, we could say, you know, overreaction in proportion to the, the present threat, because it's so similar to sometime in the past when somebody really did move away from you or abandon you or ignore your cries for being fed or picked up or loved or touched. Uh, there really was something that happened that was some version of an assault on your nervous system or uh, an inability of a parent to create that feeling of you are loved, you are safe, because that's the sort of basic thing that, that parents need to be able to provide for kids. But the thing is, no parent is perfect. No parent can always be there when the child cries. So depending on the sensitivity of the nervous system you came in with mm-hmm. as an infant, because people, people have very different levels of sensitivity just in their nervous system. They're born with it. And by the way, uh, research that I did a long time ago, it wasn't my research. I studied these different things. One article that I read was girl, girl babies are actually more um, capable as babies of not overreacting to things like loud noises. Boy babies have more sensitivity to those little shocks like loud noises or that threat of being dropped. So that's just an example of, I mean, that's a generalization, which I tend, I tend not to like those, <laughs> you know, general things, you know, men are, women are. I, I, I tend to avoid those, but I thought it, it, it just helps us understand that some little tiny people come in with different levels of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, somebody moving away from you, can can be very difficult then to to fully bond and to fully feel safe in the world if you cry and nobody comes and that mm-hmm. happened to a, a lot of us so when i ask audiences how many people have a fear of abandonment you know almost every hand goes up so so basically you ask what is what is a, a trigger so it's a sensitivity to go into this fight flight freeze Reaction. I call that a survival reaction, mm-hmm. and that takes place in in this area of the human brain that we we've all got to deal with. It's, it's called the amygdala. So we've all got this part of our brain that's scanning for danger, scanning for some potential, or now it's more imagined assault on are my needs going to be met here. Mm-hmm. So the the good thing about triggering is it gets it gets you to look at how you denied or repressed certain feelings and needs at a very early age and if you do these five steps of trigger work and and those are not in the 5 minute repair book those are in this new book from trigger mm-hmm. to tranquil if you do these five steps you get back in touch with the feelings and needs of your little self that you've 
kind of locked away in the shadows because mm-hmm. it was just too painful to feel these things. And when you're ready, if you know how to breathe, hold space, and this book teaches you how to be with yourself in a compassionate way, mm-hmm. the compassionate self-inquiry practice. Once you do that over a number of triggers and you sort of go to the same general memory in your childhood, memories will will pop up. Or sometimes it's not memories, it'll be sort of an intuition. Gosh, I've been here before, but I don't know why. So when you get triggered and you learn to do these other steps, which involve slowing everything down, because you, well, first of all, noticing the early warning signs you're triggered. So that's the second step in the five steps. And then pausing to to slow down and calm your nervous system. And then the compassionate self-inquiry where you sit with yourself with your witness consciousness activated. And you can do that by certain breath practices that just open up your emotions and open up your body relaxation and and bring the higher brain back online, Mm -hmm. the the prefrontal cortex, because that part of the brain, once that's back in the picture, that has the capacity for witnessing. Right. So you, you, in a way, getting triggered by an intimate partner in the present day, it sends you back in time to some part of yourself that was neglected or denied, and you get to bring loving attention to that part of yourself that has been in the shadows, and you get to integrate so, that so part of yourself. When you, get good at, when you get good at doing that, does that make you less triggerable in the future? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, with practice. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. And another um, thing is you can see it. You can see them coming. You can see the triggers coming. You, know, you can feel those little early warning signals sooner because mm-hmm. you're accepting, oh, yes, mm-hmm. I'm triggerable, and oh, yes, I know this is what happens in my body when I'm getting triggered. So right. you can start calming yourself right away before you even react. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So you talked about like acceptance being the first thing, and it made me think of, you know, I, I work with people who are non-monogamous, um, polyamorous, open relationship people. And so I, I do a lot of teaching around jealousy, and that's a huge trigger for a lot of people. And yeah. polyamorous people don't have a monopoly on jealousy. Monogamous people also struggle with jealousy. So... Um, that's a huge, that, that could be a huge trigger for people. And I was wondering if in, when we're in a relationship and we get, and our partner gets triggered, does it, can we make it mean that it's because they really love us? Like if they didn't care about us that much, they probably wouldn't get so triggered. And I think about like when my partner's have been like so polyamorous that they just seem to never get jealous. And then when I notice like they got a little jealous, I go, Oh, they do care. <laughs> so like I, I make it mean they care if they're jealous, which is kind of weird, especially as a polyamorous person. But you know, sometimes the trigger kind of shows that they care. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And that's a good frame. Uh, I do try to help people frame things like jealousy that way. And one issue is, though, if 
the jealous person starts to act out their jealousy, kind of, you know, it's unconscious at first, you know, an accusation, let's say. I saw you... You know, I saw you sneaking a look at your phone and your text there while, you know, you're supposed to be with me or whatever. You know, I, saw, mm-hmm. I noticed that. And you're, so you're, you're on the offense and you're jealous. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to trigger the other person who we have, we have modeled as calm, cool, collected. I understand that that means they care. You know, sometimes in, 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 when your higher brain, when your prefrontal cortex is in charge, you're able to have empathy for your jealous partner. But once they start coming at you, that can trigger you. And then right. we're in a co-triggering cycle. Yes, what do you do about co-triggering cycles? Both like how... people have something to learn here. Yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah, when so what do you do? Yeah. Couples need to have a pause agreement. Mm-hmm. which means we understand that when I see you getting triggered, in many cases it's probably going to affect my nervous system too, and I'm going to feel less safe. Now, mm-hmm. not always, but it's very, you know, it's very common to get into these co-triggering cycles. So whenever that happens, where you're, you're both saying things that you might later regret... You make an agreement that we're going to commit to this this trigger work practice. We're going to commit to talking to each other about my early warning signs that I know to watch for. And so we get to know each other's, we call it the trigger signature. It's what are the things that you think, do, say, and feel when you're triggered. So mm-hmm. everyone has to do that inventory first and share that with their partner. And so then we're a little more on the lookout for, oops, here it comes. Somebody say the word pause. And so they have a, a pause agreement. And you know, the book outlines some of the reasons why it's hard for people to pause. Because mm-hmm. you know, in an interview like this, it sounds simple, but it's, it's, it's hard to learn this. But people do learn it. In fact, highly mm-hmm. reactive people you know, who are hair trigger type reactors, they can learn this. Mm-hmm. And so then once they've paused, then let's say the jealous person gets to feel and inquire and bring self-empathy and self-compassion to their jealous part, their mm-hmm. part that's afraid I'm not enough or afraid I'm going to be abandoned or whatever those old fears are. It may seem totally irrational in the present moment, but they need to work, the jealous side of the cycle needs to work those fears. And then the other person who, let's say, is being accused, they may need to work fears like, I'm being blamed, I'm being unjustly accused. These are, you know, fears I'm not being heard. Uh, fears of chaos. Grew up in a chaotic family, and there was yeah, emotions just flying. Like, yeah, and, like yelling, and so now right? I'm now I'm. What, go ahead. What? Oh, I was just saying, like when someone raises their voice because they're so triggered, they start yelling. That can traumatize the other person, right? Yes, particularly if they grew up in a home where, I, like, I'm calling it the you know chaotic family, a disorganized 
family where people didn't have very much self-control and they were, you know, insulting and yelling and, and it didn't feel safe for for the kid. So now the kid is an avoidant attached personality style and that person attracts a more preoccupied attached personality style and the preoccupied person would be the the jealous one in a dyad situation i know we have triads in the whole bit so we can you know just extrapolate to that sometimes both people are jealous but at different times but mm-hmm. let's say you know you got the jealous one who's the pursuer and you've got the um person who gets defensive and tries to explain and reason and that's called the avoidant attached and those people have a lot to learn with each other that's the that's the a typical couple in mm-hmm. the united states today mhm right yeah that's powerful um so uh how can people become um well I, I, the word i often use is like sovereign so that they're not so easily triggered by each other um, because I know a lot of couples, can, if they've been together a long time, can become very enmeshed, and it's hard for them to find themselves separate from their partner, and then yeah. they can get triggered by the smallest little thing. So one of the things I do with couples who are wanting to open their relationship for the first time is help them unenmesh. So do yeah. you have any tools around that? Because it seems like if you can find your center that's not identified by your partner, it strengthens that witnessing mind. Yeah, definitely. Uh, The whole trigger work practice is toward the aim of more sovereignty as an individual. It doesn't mean you're cut off from caring. In fact, what it teaches is you can care deeply that somebody is upset uh, without blaming yourself without having to even make it any different and the reason you can do this is because you have developed a tolerance for emotional discomfort the whole Mm -hmm. trigger work practice teaches you not to be so afraid of your emotions and particularly what we call negative emotions Mm -hmm. uh, because you have learned to relate to your emotions in a tender way but also You've learned how to activate a part of yourself that I call the good mother archetype that reassures you that your emotions can come and they can go. And you can bring them to, sort of like you can bring them to this part of yourself that's the witness or the good mother archetype. And they can be resolved just like a crying kid comes to a mother and the mother comforts the child and then the child's crying subsides and they running off playing again that's mm-hmm. what you learn to do for yourself so that upset emotions are no big deal so then you're not having to watch oh is my partner happy is my partner not happy because this is a codependent enmeshed problem mm-hmm. too many people haven't grown up past the is my mommy happy you know, right. if my mommy's unhappy with me, I'm I'm in great danger. And you were actually, with some mommies, in great mm-hmm. danger when you were mm-hmm. three, four, five years old. But learning to process all that fear that's buried inside and bring that to consciousness and integrate that with the stronger rational parts of yourself 
you that's how that's the path to sovereignty is working on your fear of emotional pain which is what this work is about right um so if you're just joining us you're listening to leading edge love radio and this is your host sumati sparks the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com we're speaking with the author and relationship coach susan campbell who's just authored her 12th book called from triggered to tranquil so we're talking about uh the practice of working through triggers, um, emotional um, emotional volatility that comes up in a relationship. And if you have any questions for Susan, you can call in now. The phone number is 657-383-1132. You won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold, and we'll get to your call at the right time. Again, that number is 657-383-1132. Um, so one thing I... I often get with the the couples I work with is that one of them will say, um, I didn't tell you because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And what I've noticed, that's not really true. They they aren't, there's a nuance there. They're not really afraid of hurting the other person's feelings as much as they are afraid of their own discomfort from seeing their partner's feeling hurt. (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm with you 100% there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sometimes you can just make that statement to a person and they'll go, oh, you're right. You know, more and more people are getting that, that when you say, I didn't want to hurt my partner's feelings, that, that that's a story you're telling yourself to avoid feeling your own fear of being around another person who's upset. Exactly. So then we we can, you know, uh, being around an upset person is very, we call it dysregulating for many uh-huh. people. Once uh-huh. again, I mean, in other words, it throws their nervous system into fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, let's have tender feelings for for those of us who fit that. There was something in the past where people's emotions were a little too much or a lot too much for your little child nervous system Mm -hmm. to deal with. And so it's almost like that little child takes over, (laughs) that three-year-old child whose mother's screaming, you know, because of getting charged too much at the grocery store or something but that's just one of the one of the many things she screams about and then you're thinking of telling your partner bad news well no i don't want to hurt them well what's really true obviously is no i don't want to hear any screaming and yelling like i did when i was three years old all the time right 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 so it's just there's real real connections between the past and the present yeah, so a lot of our triggers, well, most of our triggers, you're saying, come from these unresolved emotions from when we were little. So you're, you've been writing about this, so what do you think? Do you think that it's inevitable that humans are just always going to have these unresolved feelings because nobody can be a perfect parent? Or do you think that we just haven't learned good parenting yet, and as we evolve as a species and become better parents, this might not be true anymore? Have you thought about that? Yeah, um, 
I would say as we evolve and as parents manage, learn to manage their own triggers better. Hey, the book has, mm-hmm. a, has a whole chapter on what do you do when you're triggered by one of your kids who's still oh. under your care, okay? Because mm-hmm. that's a big deal. I want people to understand how to be better parents. So, yeah, that can evolve in our culture once we learn, like my parents did, learn how to manage their own triggers in a responsible way and not blame your partner all those things that we've been talking about. Uh, so parents can can learn to be more mature and 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 less run by their own fears, and that'll that'll create less triggering in society. And people can become more sophisticated about these kind of tools and not resist emotional pain so much because they've got tools for processing it efficiently, you know, processing our emotions efficiently so that we can get back to just being open-hearted and present. Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe there's a great hunger now for that. Plus, there's take the world crises right now. There's so many complex problems that are overwhelming humans, we're going to have to evolve or die. We're going to have to evolve our consciousness beyond the little, you know, reptilian, self-centered place. And I'm, I'm not really trying, I'm not trying to make that wrong so much as say there's more to us humans and we need to keep actualizing more of that human potential that feels safe in the world because we've learn to process the unsafe feelings with compassion and and kind of efficiently. So I think there's a good chance that over time there'll be less and less upset, scared people in the world. Because that's Mm -hmm. what we want, you know. A scared populace is not a safe place to be, and, and we're a scared world right now. Yeah, I mean, just out there in the world, or social media is one example where people just want to lay into each other for their opinions, and they would never speak to that, each other that way if they were face-to-face. Yeah. And then, you know, road rage and park, you know, fighting over parking places. <laughs> just so much triggers and volatility out there. Yeah. I think we all need to chill out a little bit. <laughs> Um, So you talked earlier, you you alluded to how you've more recently learned about brain science, and you talked about what you call the survival brain. So can you Mm. speak a little bit more about that, about um, the brain science that you've learned and what what that is going into survival brain, what that means? Yeah. So let me map out the brain. So the, the brain evolved the human brain evolved from primitive times where at first you know the lower the lower uh, creatures had like a brain stem and that was all and everything was instinctive and then we developed uh, this this brain middle brain where the amygdala is and in this area this is where there's a area that brain science scientists have labeled the survival alarm system and this survival alarm system is always on alert, scanning for threats to our safety or well-being. So in primitive times, that's as far, that's as, far as the brain evolution went, and that was all, that was all a, a animal on the savanna in Africa needed. You just needed to be able to either run toward your enemy or run away from your enemy, you know, fight or flight. 
or freeze if you know you're going to get eaten anyway, so you, you just numb yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got, the, you've got that survival alarm system scanning for physical danger, but nowadays we don't need to be scanning for physical danger that much. We have to look before crossing a street and that sort of thing. But it's not like tigers are jumping out of the next bush all the time. So mm-hmm. we now have that danger associated with a disconnection to someone who's important to us. Like mm-hmm. I call it the one we depend on, particularly like in intimate relationships. If it looks like my partner's not connected to me, they don't give me the response I want when I make a, a bid for affection, let's say. Or I, I talk and they seem to be ignoring me or, or, or whatever. Um, things that seem unfriendly in in me, like like if if you know if I, if they loved me, they would be attending to me. So disruptions in my own feeling. There might not be any disruption from the other person. They might be very loving, feel very loving toward me. But something they do or say triggers this. Gee, you know, that's not the way I would have reacted, or that's not the response I wanted. So now that is experienced as a disconnection and it triggers you. And then you're back in your fear that you're not important, fear that your voice doesn't matter, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the goal, um, so then you didn't talk about the newer part of the brain. Yeah, let me get That's where we want to get to as much as we can, right? (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, we could almost say kind of, we could say maybe because the amygdala doesn't always make the best decisions in this, you know, in this society, the people who survived began to develop this prefrontal cortex, this higher brain. This is what's behind your forehead and, and kind of in the top part of your head there, and that where that's located. And that part can reassure the scared part the survival alarm, it can say, hey, wait, maybe this is a false alarm. And when you can calm your nervous system a little bit while while you're in that danger-danger reactivity, if you can calm your nervous system long enough to let the higher brain come on and ask questions like, wait, have we been here before? What? How did we resolve this last time? Oh, I know we love each other. No, the higher brain can actually remind you of things you've learned in the past. The higher brain can say, you know, maybe they were just tired. Maybe they weren't really having a judgmental thought. Maybe they were looking at the floor because they were tired or not or not able to pay attention. Maybe it's not personal, you know. <laughs> so that's so the so there is this prefrontal cortex that what we want to do is strengthen the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and and mm-hmm. those those connections are the connections where you can kind of give give the amygdala feedback and say slow down question your story maybe it's not a tiger maybe it's only um, a, a, a noise in the bush kind of thing Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes all the higher brain can do is just ask for that pause or that time out. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's all it should try the... to do at first because yeah. you've got a right. runaway freight train. You know, the right. amygdala <laughs> reaction a lot of times, it's, it's hard to stop. So don't try to, don't try to, like a lot of people want to, oh, we're triggered. Okay, I think I can calm my partner down now. Let me just say these reasonable sounding even kind loving words and so you'll you'll try to stop that runaway freight train sometimes it'll work but Mm -hmm. um be careful what to don't expect too much mostly what we want to shoot for is to both be able to pause and give ourselves some self-regulation which is Mm -hmm. slow deep breathing and and self-soothing Right. And do you think that um, big triggers often come as a result of somebody not speaking up early enough about what their needs are, like they're tolerating, 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 and then they finally blow? Yeah. For some people, that's just, that's their MO. I mean, some people, they've got big triggers and they'll come out right away with them. But it it, it is true that... Um, the more you sit on uh, an unmet need and you, you, you're kind of building up that feeling of disconnection, you know, you've got those stories in your mind now, I'm not cared about, I'm not respected. Those stories continue to build and so maybe there's just this last, you know, like a last straw event that, Oh boy, here we go again, that type of thing, and then the person just lets it lets it fly. And um yeah. sometimes that's the beginning of going into relationship coaching, marriage counseling, and it's a good thing. Right. Well, yeah, it just this memory came back when I asked that question because I was thinking about a client when I said it, but then my own memory came back where I had a partner who would make these little kind of tiny barbs and like the first time it was like, "Oh, you know, don't worry about it, just let it go." Maybe he didn't have enough sleep or whatever. <laughs> and then, like, we'd go on a trip together and then maybe, like, another barb. And, oh, geez, you know, I, I want to have more thick skin than this. I don't want to be upset by this little thing. And then the third, then by the seventh one, I would just start freaking out and screaming at him. And then he's looking at me like, wow, what happened to you? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd been, like, I, they, these things have been accumulating, you know? And so that's a skill to, like, speak up early on, even if I'm going to judge myself as not having thick skin or, um, you know, why can't I make space for him to be a little grumpy? Like I had to learn over time to speak up earlier because I would be the one that would be the bad guy <laughs> for having yeah. tolerated it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in some of my other books, I um, have a lot to say about clearing the air on a regular basis. Uh, like I ask people to do this thing called the authenticity inventory. So when did you not speak up? You know, like at, at the end of every day, when did something like bother you? If you know this is a pattern for you, you know, oh, to, be, um, to be able to overlook things, you know, I'm, I'm above that, you know, <laughs> some of us. And uh, so when did I not? address something that bothered me and then I look at well why so our our listeners can do this now like let me guide you so when the last couple days have you not addressed something that bothered you with an important person in your life like Mm -hmm. 
Sumati's thing with the barbs. Mm-hmm. And then, what reason did you give yourself? So I'll, I'll do this with you, Sumati. In the beginning, you know, what reason did you give yourself for not bringing it up? Mm. Um, oh, I should just have thick skin and not be so sensitive. Yeah. So if you could let yourself just speak what was there, oh, like let's, what if you didn't have that belief that you ought to be able to handle it and have thick skin, what might you have said to this person from your heart? Just say it, say it out loud now to me. Ouch, that hurt. Mm. Yeah. And then the next question is, how does it feel to say that just here with yourself where it's safe? Mm. It feels really good. Like, do you feel accepting of yourself or do you feel a little shame or, you know, does it feel uh, like relief? No, it feels good. It is one of those examples of if you speak up early, it doesn't have to be so big. It's yeah. just, ouch, that hurt. It's not, I'm not attacking him. I'm not blaming him or making him wrong. I'm just saying my experience was, ouch, that hurt. It's very simple. Yeah. Well, love, lovely. And, and, and so then, so the, the last part of the exercise then is, would it be appropriate to go back tomorrow or the next time you see this guy and, because, you know, we just did this exercise. This is you doing it in front of your mirror in the bathroom at the end of the mm-hmm. day by yourself, or you're doing it with me. Now now that you've said that, would it would it be possible, and, and, and I'll just speak the question a little more fully, would it be useful to go back and say, you know, yesterday when you said da-da-da, I wish I had just said, ouch, that hurts. Mm-hmm. So you would know how that impacted me. Mm-hmm. So then, then it's like, would it be appropriate and would it feel right to go back and have that clearing conversation? And then you get to pick because it's not always good, but a lot of times right. it is. Yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. That's cool. So Those I actually really awesome. do that. I actually do that authenticity inventory myself. Um, quite frequently, I just do it naturally. I go, oh, there's a, there's one that I have to address because I didn't say anything, and then mm-hmm. I'll go through it and uh, look at my reasons why I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to look foolish or whatever, and then say what I would actually wish I could have said, and then sometimes I'll go and clear it with the person, and sometimes I won't. Mhm. Just kind of take sometimes just take note of it yourself so you can do it differently in the future. Mhm. And just saying so, it out loud and realizing my defensive excuse for not speaking up and maybe giving myself a, a little tenderness around that. Uh that's that's got some self-healing just by itself. Right. But then if we do tell our partners about it, they can start to learn or or you know, continue to learn about our landmines, you know, like our trigger landscape. Like how important is that to be aware of our own and our partner's triggers? Well, I I like what you said. We're we're trying to educate each other. It's a good thing to be aware of your own triggers for all the reasons that I said. You can 
see it coming. You can pause. You can stop before doing too much damage. Um, so that's the own triggers. It's good to be able to educate your partner about your triggers. And if, you, if you're in an intimate partnership, it's important to have these conversations, to, to not just do the trigger work, but step outside and say, you know, uh, these are some of the, and you could do this while you're just getting to know somebody. These are some of the kinds of things that tend to trigger me. What tends to trigger you? Uh, and what do you tend to do when you get triggered? Do you clam up or do you get big? You know, I want to know. Right. And, and right. you can have a friendly conversation while you're still in the romance stage. So I recommend that. And and also, as, as you kind of suggested, uh, you're teaching the other person how you like to be treated and what helps you feel s- safe and loved, mm-hmm. which I right. think is partly my responsibility, you know, not to just expect everybody knows how to love everybody. I, I have to teach them and shape them a little bit. Right, exactly. And ostensibly, if the person cares about you, they'll want to know. Like, <laughs> like one example is... Um, a couple I worked with, one person got really triggered by the word betrayed and mm. the other person didn't feel like they were betraying them. Um, you know, it just felt like too strong of a word. So they just learned to use a different word. So sometimes the words, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I, when that happens, I, instead of saying I felt betrayed, saying just I felt my trust lessened or something like that. So certain words yeah, can like yeah. really Yeah, there are trigger, trigger words. Um Mm-hmm. And it's good to know your partner's, you know, just their own idiosyncrasies with regard to certain words. Mm-hmm. And and also, um, but if somebody does, I'll just add a thing about betrayed. Uh, that came up in a session with somebody today in my practice. Uh, sometimes when you use words like, you know, betrayed or violated or dismissed or or disrespected, you know, you're 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 projecting your core fear onto the other person and so it gives you some information. If if you say, I felt betrayed, you, you wanna take that off of the other person, but you wanna look at what does that bring up for me? What's the actual experience for me mm-hmm. of feeling betrayed? Mm-hmm. We're not you know, try not to get too attached to the words, you know, he did betray me, but more when I think I'm being betrayed, what what comes up for me? And that's that's the self inquiry part. That's the self curiosity. And mm-hmm. people can learn to enjoy knowing their shadow side better because it's very empowering. If you know mm-hmm. this shadow piece, it's not running you anymore from your unconscious. Yes, and this inquiry work, you know, I think that Meditation is such an important tool for all of us to use so that we can strengthen that witnessing mind. And the yes. more I do it, like I've been doing a lot of like Vipassana kind of awareness meditation recently where I just kind of watch all the thoughts go by and realize that I'm not my thoughts because they just come and go and I stay here watching them. So that's one thing I try to teach all my clients is to develop a meditation practice. But just the other day I had one of those stupid dates dates from a dating app. I'm so not a fan uh-huh. of dating apps. Can you tell? And so um, <laughs> the person like dismissed me within like two minutes. <laughs> and I felt so rejected. And so I went over and I sat in the park 
and mm-hmm. I noticed how rejection felt in my body. Yeah. You know, and it was so interesting. In the past, I might have like gone and had a beer or like you know done something, or, you know, to like you know bury the feeling or or like just get rid of the uncomfortable feeling or or acted out in some way. But instead, because of this practice, I just went and sat and watched where rejection shows up in my body, how it made my adrenaline flow, how I felt like this revenge thing come up, like all these things came mm. through my mind and my body just from me perceiving that I was rejected. And again, there's the whole piece to even know if I was rejected. He might have just had to have a bowel movement. Who knows? You know? mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. this is my story that I was rejected brought up all this stuff, you know. So I think that that practice of being aware of our like I think that's part of your authenticity practice or you're getting real practice, right? Is like noticing in your body where everything yeah. shows up. Yeah, and meditation, uh, especially v- the v- Vipassana style of meditation is very similar to what I'm what I'm teaching. I'm just giving you a little more specific signpost to watch for in the emotional body. But this stuff will come up if you meditate long enough and if this is your time to deal with this material that's in your subconscious, it'll come up during meditation. Mm-hmm. When I first started meditating, I was in my 20s and I, I was finding myself getting so angry. You know, and, and then I realized anger at my husband. And I go, I thought meditation was supposed to make you more peaceful and calm. <laughs> so I went to the meditation teacher and, you know, not necessarily. It brings up whatever, what I'm going to say, whatever's ready to come up. Because right. nature gives us what we need to heal ourselves if we can learn to pay attention and slow down to what's going on in the body. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I'm a big fan of Vipassana meditation. Great, great. Um, Before we run out of time, I want to ask you, like, what do you most hope readers will take away from your new book? Well, one thing, uh, I alluded to it before, is I want everyone to get more accepting of the fact that we do get triggered. I hope people will go, oh, this is part of being human. This this survival business is built into my brain, and it's just something i got to come to terms with. Instead of thinking there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with all of us, it's just this is humanity's time to come to terms with this level of unconsciousness and make that more conscious. So I hope people will... Uh, have greater acceptance and then of course I want people to do the practices so that they can heal that fear of emotional pain that was something to be feared when you're tiny because it was overwhelming a lot of times to your nervous system but it no longer needs to be feared if you know how to hold it and look at it with these tools so um, Mm -hmm. I envision a world that is more able to hear inconvenient truths, mm-hmm. you know, from, uh, I, you know, I didn't like what you said to me, you know, be able to hear that, to, hey, the climate is a big crisis and we need to be doing something about these big world crises. So I, I think humanity 
is evolving, and this is what I hope people will will take away: is that we are part of the evolution of of humanity, and our our world really needs us to be able to function with with more equanimity and to actually be able to handle unfortunate, inconvenient truths, so we can deal with them. Beautiful. Thank you, Susan. Well, uh, boy, that time just flew by. I love geeking out with you about relationship stuff. (laughs) um, I want to give you some time to tell our listeners how they can get your book and anything else you want to share about your practice. Okay. Well, um, the book is available at any bookseller, and I would like to also uh, ask people if you like the book, would you give me a review on Amazon? That really helps us authors. There's not a lot of, of ways to get a book noticed. But to me, this this information is vital f- for having a more peaceful world. Mm-hmm. And then I want to say to your listeners, too, that I do a monthly free coaching webinar on Zoom, and I, I publish how to get on that webinar in my monthly newsletter, so if you go to susancampbell.com, you'll see a place where you can click to sign up for getting a free ebook on unshakable self-confidence, and it also subscribes you to my newsletter where I always put out s- some little tidbit and tip about how to do relationships better, but I also tell you about different free podcasts that I'm on and how to get on this free coaching call because there's quite a community of people that just come every month and I work with them and so it's like you know free therapy so please come to my free call every month it's the first Tuesday of every month is when I host it fabulous so by going to susancampbell.com they get all these freebies an ebook um your newsletter and access to that free coaching call mm-hmm. that's so great very generous of you well thank you i hope everybody will get the book and write a review as well because i agree with you i think this is skills that we all really need to master to take our our species to the next level and hopefully survive all these catastrophes that are happening around us so thank you for doing the work that you do susan i really feel it Mm, thank you, Sumati, and thank you for doing these shows. This is a big contribution, and, and and I respect you for your work, too. Thank you, Susan. Okay, well, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. So next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, I will be meeting with Esther. Um, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting her name right now. Esther, she's from Australia, and she is quite the master with energy. It's going to be really fun. She talks about some really confrontational things around energy. So um, please join us at 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern on Leading Edge Love Radio, which is hosted by blogtalkradio.com. And you can find all my prior episodes of Leading Edge Love Radio right on my website, sumatisparks.com. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.